Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Great. We continue um, then in our series, uh, The Five Graces of Jesus. Uh, I want to thank you, though, before we get underway with, with that, uh, about the, the number and the different kinds of conversations that there have been uh, around our community since uh, Vision Sunday. Uh, it's always encouraging when uh, there are conversations that emerge out of the time that we uh, spent together. And to thank you in particular, I talked at the, on the Vision Sunday about the way that we as a community affect the way that uh, something feels in a moment like this, that we, the, the congregation, have a, a much greater power than we would naturally think that we do. It's not like a, a cinema where it doesn't really matter who turns up as to whether you enjoy the film or not. This environment is so different. And the level of expectation and energy and sense of uh, commitment to one another and to what we're doing uh, has, I think, noticeably increased over these last few Sundays, and we've had different Sundays as a result of it, and uh, so thank you uh, very much. It's also worth saying, before I get underway, that the... um At the Vision Sunday, we talked about balancing celebration, what we do here, and community. And there are two community initiatives that are starting uh, today that I'd like us to be aware of and prayerful uh, towards. The first is this afternoon when the Hub Missional Community are starting Lego Church. And if this sounds more fun than what you're doing right now, then you should be there. Uh, They're doing the feeding of the 5,000 using Lego and... uh, Uh, Because of that, there are people that will share in the story of Jesus this afternoon that would never do in this environment. You with me? So that's uh, good news. And so we pray for them as they think about, uh, with people that don't yet know Jesus, about how Jesus takes the little things in our lives and does something incredible with them. And then secondly, this evening, Carrie and uh, Becky are trying to gather uh, young adults that are in that uh, season of life where perhaps they're not yet settled down with families in terms of children. Uh, They're not quite part of the youth anymore because they've grown out of that. And uh, you, if you feel young at heart, uh, can gather with them at uh, the cult bar this evening uh, for a time of uh, getting together and games and so on. Let's pause together, shall we, and uh, pray. Father, we, we know that our life together is so much more than what we express here in this moment. This moment is super important. And in so many ways, the bedrock of our community life, of our whole life together. Yet we need to work that out in the comings and goings of our lives, with the people and in the places where you've So we pray this afternoon and we pray for this evening, for they will be church just as much as this is church. So may Jesus be in the midst as we ask you here now in his name. Amen. Last time, we talked about the fact that... Uh, Well, at the beginning, we talked about there are these five graces, these five gifts that Jesus gives to his church. Jesus himself gives them to his church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and uh, the teachers given by Jesus. And and it's not simply that we have gifts. We noticed that uh, the emphasis was kind of bigger than just we are given gifts uh, as different people, but, but more that we are the gift 
to the church. And in that sense, these gifts carry a, a level of vocation, a sense of calling. And we noted at the beginning of this passage in Ephesians 4, where they're talked about, Paul talks about us living a life worthy of the calling that we have received from uh, the Lord. And each of these gifts is given to uh, enrich the church, that together we might become fully mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And we worked backwards last time and we said to ourselves, well, if these are five gifts from Jesus to the church, uh, then uh, they must be, if they're of value and significance, be demonstrated in the life of Jesus. And if they were to be demonstrated in the life of Jesus, and Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as we read just some moments ago, then we would expect these five identities, personalities, voices, modes of being, whatever language you want to use, we'd expect these five uh, ways of being to be in God himself, in which case we would expect them to be mirrored in creation because because God created the world in his image. And we began to note that we see, once we see these things, it's hard to unsee them, we can see these five personalities expressed in humanity. We talked about the apostles, those who are pioneering, who step out and break new ground. If it wasn't for pioneering type people, then almost, if not all of the inventions, developments, technologies, health uh, care provisions that we enjoy would never have been discovered or invented. Yesterday I watched the film First Man. Who's watched the film First Man? You good Christians, never going inside a cinema. That's, that's very good of you. If you're inside a cinema and Jesus comes back, then he won't be able to find you. But, uh, some teaching, some teaching we were told in South Wales in the early 70s. Uh, but I took the risk that he would find me even in the cinema. It's the story of the, the, the first man on the moon, Neil Armstrong and so on. And the level of, whatever you think about that as a particular, why did we think that was important in those days? Why did it seem so significant? That's probably a sermon uh, for another time. Yet the, the determination to, to go to a new place, to conquer a new territory, to discover something new, was, was so deeply rooted in the psyche of uh, those people and in Neil Neil Armstrong uh, himself. So we see mimicked in the world the, the apostle type, the, the prophets, those who speak out against injustice. If it wasn't for the prophets, then perhaps we would still be sending kids up chimneys and there would still be slaves around the world and modern day slavery would still be undercover and not really known or talked about if it wasn't for the prophets, those who, uh, who, who just see the impact of the message of truth and justice of God's kingdom and speak it out, even if they don't personally understand that that's what they're doing. The evangelists, the good news characters, those who are uh, are anxious for people to discover that which will help them be uh, found rather than lost. And so we go on. Think of the shepherds. If there weren't shepherds, people who have a nurturing heart, then our hospitals would be drained of nurses and doctors and and so on. uh, And if the same with teachers, our education system would be drained of teachers and so on and so forth. So we, begin to, we began to see that we see these five graces woven into the fabric of the world because they are five graces that are part of who God is. And now we're going to work our way backwards and acknowledge that if every team, 
Every school, every hospital, every workplace, every home, every community, every church, if every one of those needs these five graces in order to function in a mature way, we want to drill right down into the life of Jesus this morning and to acknowledge that when a school, a team, a workplace, uh, whatever it is, acknowledges these five, they are, even if they do not realize, acknowledging Jesus as the source behind it all. Our reading reminds us that this should be the case. Colossians uh, 1 verse 13. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the, when you think about the firstborn son, the one who carries the, the family name, the one who carries the, the, the legacy, the inheritance, the one who has first responsibility. He is the first one over all creation. For in him, verse 16, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. It's quite expansive, it's quite complete, uh, that uh, the, the, the cosmic Christ, he, he's not just Christ of the church or the world, but he's the Christ of the whole created order, the, the Christ of the whole universe, the cosmic Christ. And then it drills right down into verse 18 and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So this Christ, who created the whole universe in his image, who carries these five modes, these five voices, is not just the Christ of the whole world, but now we read is the Christ, the head of his body, the church. That in this place, the church, he might be above all honored and those five graces might be seen more openly, more explicitly, more honored, more celebrated than perhaps in anywhere else in the whole of creation. Jesus is not tucked away in a religious world, locked up in temples or cathedrals or rituals, but he's the God of the whole, the whole world, the firstborn, the head of all things. I love the way that Jesus debunks the idea that he's just interested in, in um, kind of churches, synagogues, and cathedrals, and so on, uh, right at the beginning of his ministry. Remember that story when um, Jesus is calling those first disciples, and the disciples have been out all night fishing, and they were professional fishermen, uh, and they'd caught nothing having been out all night. And they come back and they're tired and they're weary and they're frustrated. Uh, I mean, if you've ever done a day's work and at the end of your day's work discovered that you've produced nothing, it, it creates a level of anxiety and hopelessness. And they've been up all night and they get onto the shore and Jesus says, as if he knows anything about fishing, go throw your nets on the other side. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, look, I know everything about everything. There isn't a trade. There isn't a workplace. There isn't an environment that I don't know everything about. I'm not just the Jesus of the church. I'm not just the Jesus of the Jews. I'm not Jesus, just the Jesus of the few, but I'm the Jesus of the whole world. And here we read though that the church is from Christ. The church is for Christ. The church is about Christ. The church is in Christ. The church exists to be Christ in the world. We are described as the body of Christ, of which Christ himself is the head. 
In other words, the church is only the church for as long as it is faithful to Jesus. We can only be the body of Christ if we are attached to the head, which is Christ. Needless to say, if your head and your body come apart, you cease to be who you are. You can't stamp and shout and say, well, I'm still Simon, because manifestly I'm not anymore. If my head has been... And we can stamp our feet as a people and say we are the church. But if we've lost our connection in some way with the head, then we no longer are the church that we proclaim. We are completely and utterly defined by Jesus himself. It all comes from him. Everything that Jesus was, we now are as his body. All that he lived for, we now live for. All that he started, we now complete. And you remember Jesus said to those disciples, didn't he? You will do the things that I've been doing and you will do greater things than these because I go to the Father. Now, understandably and rightly so, the charismatics have have hooked on the greater things and talked about it in terms of miracles and supernatural happenings. I think, by the way, that's absolutely true and correct, but it's not the only greater sense in in which we carry on the work of Jesus. We are the body of Christ connected to the head that that has its whole raison d'etre to be in the world who Jesus was in the world, to live the mission that he himself began. And why did he give us those five modes, those five graces, those five gifts? Because they are the five gifts that he most displayed in living out the mission that he had on earth. In which case, if we are to live out that mission here and now today, we will need all five of those graces at work in our lives because without them, we can never fully express the life and ministry of Jesus. And so fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the one who began, and the perfecter, the one who will finish it, fixing our eyes on Jesus, we, we get all of our raison d'etre from him and from him alone. And that verse that I just skipped over a moment ago is just another reminder, really, that we get it all from him. By the grace God has given me, I, says Paul, laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on, but each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, Christ. We're not called to be anything new, to start anything new, to conjure up anything new. All we have to do is carry on what Jesus started. And in his life, we see these five graces. And he says, uh, and Paul writes about the ascended Jesus, that moment when he's going up into heaven, and he's basically saying to the church, now it's your turn. Now it's completely over to you. What does he say? He says, look, I'll give you the five, the five modes of being, the five personalities, the five graces, the five gifts that you will need to be my body on earth until I come. I find that quite exciting and quite a strong mandate for us to understand and embrace these aspects of the life and ministry of. And when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, we see that he was the quintessential, the perfect example of all of these five personalities, all of these five graces at work in him. And therefore, we should expect to see them at work in the church. Jesus was the quintessential apostle, wasn't he? The sent one. It's boiling in here, isn't it? The big theme of Jesus' life, or perhaps the first big theme, of Jesus was that he was sent from God 
with the mission of God. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he sent his one and only son into the world, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the verse, isn't it, that encapsulates in our minds the very heart of the gospel. And in fact, Jesus talked about uh, or owned that sentness for himself when, you remember, he was down to read just like Linda, with or without spectacles, I do not know. But he was down to read and, and, and he read from the book of Isaiah about the spirit of the Lord being on him. And at the end of it, he says, this is, this is me. I am the one sent to uh, provide freedom for the prisoners. I am the one coming with good news. I am the sent one. And as we move towards Christmas, the whole understanding of what God did at Christmas was that he, he, he left there in order to come here. That's what, we, that's what we believe the incarnation is all about. That's why we believe the mandate on our lives is to leave where we are, to go where God has placed us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, the one and only, full of grace and truth. Jesus summed up His own life in terms of being the one who was sent. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And as a consequence, if we are Jesus' body, if we are his representation in the world, we too are always a sent people. It's never ever about being seated. It's always about being sent because that's the posture with which Jesus lived the whole of his life. And he made it abundantly clear when he said at the end of his life, as the Father has sent me, so what am I doing now? Hey, I'm sending you. We are an apostolic people, a sent people into the world. Sent by God for his purpose, for his mission, for his end. And whenever we stop expressing our sentiment, then we become a little more disconnected from the head and we lose the very essence of what it means to be church. Reflecting back, the New Testament highlights the apostolic nature of, uh, of Jesus uh, in, in all kinds of different ways. I, I love this verse from Hebrews. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, that sense of being sent, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and our high priest. So Jesus was the quintessential apostle, but, uh, but he was also the quintessential uh, prophet, the, the message bringer. In fact, the Gospels start like this, that Jesus came as the Word. Again, we'll talk about that at Christmas, won't we? Or or perhaps in in the other Gospels, in Mark's Gospel, uh, Jesus came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The time has come, repent. uh, uh, The kingdom of God has come, repent and believe the good news. Jesus is the message bringer to the world. As a prophet, he spoke God's truth into people and situations. He was a truth carrier, a truth believer, and he longed that people would know and understand and receive the truth because the truth would set them free. And so he spoke out against injustice. He championed the cause of the poor and the oppressed. He gave honor and dignity to women way above that which society was understanding at the time. And it's interesting that, uh, that he talked all the time about his, his words and his message not being his own. He, he would say, wouldn't he, that he, he uh, look, I'm, I'm the message bringer. I'm, I'm bringing my, my, my words from God. I, I do not speak on my, on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. Can you see how even in that one verse is the idea of Jesus being the true apostle 
and the true prophet, the one who is sent and the one who proclaims God's truth, uh, encapsulated just there in that single verse. I guess one of the most iconic prophetic moments in the life and ministry of Jesus was when he cleared the temple. Uh, Such a brilliant moment, isn't it? Because it was so unexpected. You didn't see it coming. It's like the twist in the, in the Netflix drama that you didn't quite see. You go, ooh, I didn't, didn't see that. And suddenly Jesus declares himself as the, the true messenger from God who will stand against injustice and proclaim a new way. And uh, when we were looking at the, at the, um, uh, at the, the real Jesus, that sermon series uh, earlier on in the year that perhaps you've forgotten all about, we were talking about how all the events surrounding the temple in those last days of Jesus' life, were prophetic enactments. Not only was the temple going to be literally destroyed, and he acted that out, but the temple was going to be made completely null and void now because of the death and because of his own death and resurrection. He was now going to be the one who would pave the way uh, to God. And so all the, you get all these prophetic words around the temple about, uh, do you see all these great buildings? And they were magnificent. They were huge buildings. Not one stone here will be left on another. And it was unimaginable, but it absolutely came true. And you will know that throughout his ministry, he, he gave the veracity of his prophetic message to be whether he would one day die and rise again. And he would say, not once, twice, three times, you know, it's, this is what's been said of the Son of Man. He will suffer, but in three days he will rise again. No wonder. In fact, there wasn't anybody. There wasn't a friend or foe, really, who didn't accept that Jesus was a prophet. So we've got this idea of Jesus being the perfect apostle, the, the perfect sent one from God, and the perfect message bringer, the one who was championing the message of the kingdom of truth and justice and forgiveness and restoration and hope and all of the, 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 the messages tied up in those prophetic words. Uh, and then you can see where this is going. Now, thirdly, he was the quintessential evangelist. Jesus carried an insatiable desire for lost people, did he not? So he wasn't just the apostle sent, he wasn't just the prophet speaking out the word, but he had this incredible evangelistic heart for lost people. The hurting, the broken, the lonely, the downtrodden, the sick, whatever made people lost. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Why? Because he loved the lost. And in his heart for the lost, he becomes in those moments quite single-minded. In fact, Jesus told stories that would express that, that evangelistic heart of God. We know them as the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, the, the lost coin. When you lose a coin, you will, you will look everywhere for that coin until you find it because it's that precious. You might think you're not very precious because you're just one sheep in the 99. But he will look for you until he finds you because his perspective, his verdict is that you matter in the whole universe, your value and matter. That which is lost must be found. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were lost and helpless, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And sometimes the story zooms right in to to slow it down, to give you an example. Zacchaeus is a great example. 
He was lost. He was lost in his deception. He was lost in his relationships. He was lost in the sense of his own identity and morality and worthiness. And he's up a tree and Jesus is on his way somewhere. And you know what you can be like if you're on your way somewhere. Most important thing about being on the way to somewhere is to make sure you get there. And it's infuriating sometimes in life when you're asked to travel with people who are not as interested as getting there as you are. But Jesus is on his way to get somewhere. And yet he sees Zacchaeus up a tree and he stops the whole thing and changes the whole course of his day because of his heart for those who are lost. Immediately, Jesus says, I must stay at your house. So he came down, Zacchaeus, at once and welcomed him gladly. And so, uh, and there's, there's lots of examples, aren't there? Like blind Bartimaeus who was shouting out on the side of the road. And Jesus again is on his way somewhere. And the disciples are effectively going, you haven't got time. And he's just a blind beggar anyway, so don't really bother. And, and Jesus completely stops the whole carnival because of his heart for lost people. And Jesus explains it when he was questioned. He said, the thing is, I've come for those who are sick. That's why I've come. I haven't come for those who think they've got it all together. I've come for those who know that they are lost. And there's that verse about blind Bartimaeus. No one? Joking. Joke, joke, joke. But it's, it's, it's hard to see, not to see, the evangelist in Jesus radically orientated towards lost people. When the church stops being radically orientated towards lost people, can you see that the head has been severed from the body? The body makes no sense without that voice, that mode, that personality, that theme, that dominant note of we are radically committed towards lost people. And that's where you can begin to see some of the tensions that go on. Because as I was talking about being radically orientated towards lost people, some of you were going, yes, finally, he's understood something. And it was stirring something in you. And you were getting excited about what I was saying. And you were going, yeah, he's absolutely right. That's what we're about. And others of you are thinking, if I can be so bold, to tell you what I think you might be thinking. Others of you are thinking, ah, he's going on about mission again. But what about all us people already here? That's because you're the pastoral. Your pastoral voice is more natural. And it's not that it's right or wrong. You see, we need all five. We need all five as the body of Christ for the whole thing to work. We need all five for the ministry and life of Jesus to be properly expressed. It's not either, but it's both and. You see, Jesus was not just the one who left the sheep to search for the one that was lost. He was also the shepherd who slept across the sheep pen to protect the sheep. He said, I'm the gate. I am the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is not just the one that went all the way to look for the lost person and leave the 99 behind. He's also the one who has taught the 99 to know his voice so that he can protect and nurture them. Do I get an amen from at least two voices? Thank you, Jane, the past worker. But that's it, isn't it? We've got these different voices of Jesus that we need to embrace in our community. Jesus was the quintessential Apostle, prophet, evangelist, and shepherd, nurturer, protector. His commitment to the sheep was unwavering. He says, I'm the gate that guards. They're going in and they're going out. And way more than that, he says, do you know what? I'm the good shepherd and I will give my life for these Hallelujah. I'll lay down my life for them. And if Zacchaeus was a great story, to highlight Jesus' kind of uh, uh, zooming in on, on someone who's lost. I think the woman caught in adultery is a great story to help us see how Jesus zeroed in with his shepherd, his pastoral heart. Here was a woman who needed healing and restoration and forgiveness and a new beginning. Here was a woman who needed nurturing back to life. 
And Jesus was there for her right at her point of need. And maybe you remember the story that the woman is dragged out, caught in the act of adultery. Now, the last time I understood that, you needed two people. Where's the bloke? I've no idea. That says something about what was going on in itself. She's dragged out into the courtyard and they're going to stone her to death because they believe that's what the Lord demands. They say to Jesus, because they want to trick him, they say to Jesus, what do you think we should do? Surely we need to do what the law commands. Surely we need to be faithful to what we read in the scripture in the way that we've come to understand it. And Jesus starts to scribble down on the floor and, uh, and, and says in such a profound way, well, the one who's, the one who's, who's never done anything wrong, then, then you lob the stone for And of course, slowly they walk away. And then we read these words, Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, uh, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then there is, I think, this pregnant pause. If you were a filmmaker at this moment, you'd hang this in the air because there is still one person who can condemn. Are you with me? And she says, almost quietly, under her breath, and then neither do I condemn you. Go now, forgiven, but, but sin no more. The, the nurturer, the shepherd, guides us to green pasture, takes us through the dark valley to green and richer pasture. Don't, don't go back to that way of life. Uh, the shepherd will lead us. The pastoral heart takes you to a new and bigger and more flourishing place. Probably the most accepted theme of Jesus in the Gospels is this last one, that of teacher, of, of rabbi. Now may the God of peace who through the blood... Oh, sorry, that's to do with that one. Let's move on. Uh, the people were amazed at his teaching uh, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. I must confess that teachers can make things really dull. I mean, we've got a lot to apologize for. We've put Christians through all sorts of stuff every Sunday, haven't we? I've done my fair share of dragging you through all sorts of over the years. And if you stuck with it, God bless you. Patience, patience and more patience. I've just droned on week after week. And you've sat there staring at me faithfully. Some of you at least. God bless you. Others of you have created inventive ways simply to get through it. Well, why did, didn't, that, didn't that minister chat make marriage sound really boring on Friday? Do you watch the wedding? No? No royal wedding fans in the house? No, no royalists? Elizabeth watched the wedding? I watched the wedding, yeah. Oh, he was so... Oh, the holy estate of matrimony. I mean, honestly... But but we got a lot to responsible for. But then Jesus comes along. It's like this complete breath of fresh air. They go, this guy seems to know what he's on about. It was alive and electric. Like the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. And pierces right to the heart. And suddenly they're going, this is not just a teacher. This is a teacher with an incredible difference. This guy seems to know exactly what he's talking about. And I wonder where it began. I remember... Um, you know, thinking years ago about the 12-year-old who'd got lost and ends up in the temple and he's talking to all the bigwigs of the day and it seems that even at 12 he knows a heck of a lot more than they seem to know. There was an aliveness about, about who he was. And then he began his first, um, first day of ministry and he preached the sermon, uh, the Beatitudes, and people have spent 2,000 years still trying to understand it. I guess there's nothing new about sermons in that, is there? Uh, still trying to understand what the preacher was on about. But the words were so deep. So rich, so profound, we, we still can't get our heads around the ultimate implications of the things that Jesus was saying. He was a uh, teacher par excellence, teacher extraordinaire. But not just in that public way. He would take the disciples away quietly and explain things to them. One day when he was praying, they said to him, hey, you've got to teach us to pray. 
And then one day again, quietly, when he was washing the disciples' feet, he said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, I've not simply taught you with words, but I've taught you with my way of life. Now you go and do as I have done. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. And of course, it's how the whole story of Jesus' life ends, isn't it? Therefore, go, the apostle, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what? And teaching them. And teaching them. When the church ceases to teach the Word of God, it ceases to be the church. When we cease in our way of life, in our communities, to teach the Word, we cease to be the church. We become dislocated from the, from the head. And of course, these five um, kind of uh, personalities, these five graces, are not distinct with hard edges. But as you begin to zoom in on them, you can see how they, they blend sometimes. One merges into the other and, and how glorious and wonderful that uh, is. And sometimes, as I highlighted, even in the same verse, the same moment, you get these different uh, personalities coming to the forth. I speak, says Jesus, I'm a prophet. Uh, um, I speak as, as the one who's been sent, he would say. Uh, another time he says, you call me teacher. And uh, in the context of the, the Pharisees criticizing him for being the evangelist for eating with tax collectors and those that are. So where does that leave us? Quite simply this. If we are to be the church, we need a healthy expression of all five. If we overemphasize or underemphasize one or the other, we cease to be the body of Christ that we are called to be. And that, in a way, is part of this journey together because it goes back to where we started when we talked about some of these graces being overemphasized. We've overemphasized possibly pastor and teacher, which means that when we start talking about apostle, prophet, and evangelist, because we've been comfortable talking about pastor and teacher, it, it feels like we're sort of saying that they're not important anymore. And that can be hard if we've invested our life into, into churches where, where, where pastoring and teaching has been such an important part. We don't want to diminish those at all, but we do need to raise the others up so that they are all, you with me? So that they're all embraced, so that they're all celebrated, so that they're all given equal sense of worth and value. And the beautiful thing about this whole journey is that God has placed in you an expression of these graces. That's why for some of you, when I talked about the evangelist, you got it in a way that others of you got it when I talked about the shepherd. Others of you got it when I talked about teacher. Others, at the beginning, when I talk about powering, you go, yes, let's get out and change something. Do something different because there's a whole new world. And others of you go, oh no, it's the last thing I want to do. That's because we're all different, but we need other. You are the gift to this church. Not that you have gifts, but that you are the gift. And I'm super excited about what it might mean for us to raise our conscience of these five uh, graces. The folks that were listening uh, before the service were reflecting as they listened on the story of the people in the wilderness and how it looked pretty messy and chaotic when they were going through the wilderness. And yet when they got into the promised land, they could look back and they could see God's hand at work. Church right now is pretty messy. It's pretty messy because we, we go, we're not what we were because we've seen some things that call us forward. But we're not quite what we, maybe we never will be, what we dream we shall be. And so there's this kind of messiness in the middle. But a sense as 
with them as they were listening this morning. There is a moment in time when we'll look back at the messiness that we might sometimes feel is right now and go, actually, God was doing stuff, shaping us, teaching us some things, and we can see something new now. There is a a new land that we are able to possess because of the journey that we've been on and all that we've understood we've embraced. The church is the body of Christ needs all of these five glories. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the firstborn over all creation, the head of the church, the one to which it all points. And as we see the apostle and prophet and evangelist and shepherd and teacher at work in the world, however broken and however marred, May the church express those five graces with greater clarity, with richer depth, honoring the one who ultimately has given. So we worship him. We worship Jesus. And as our response today, we're simply going to do that for some moment. We worship.